discuter de tout ça. I don't want to set the world on fire. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Good evening, good afternoon, or good morning, whenever it may be, wherever you may be, and however you may be hearing my voice. Whether it be via download through one of the many podcast platforms, or if you are listening to the premiere on the Alternate Current Radio's live stream, I appreciate you tuning in and joining me as we attempt to navigate the shark-infested waters of the agenda-centivized media and look past the propaganda. This is your daily dose of what's currently all the ruckus. What in God's name is going on in here? What was that ruckus? Uh, what ruckus? I was just in my office and I heard a ruckus. Could you describe the ruckus, sir? Watch your tongue, young man. Watch it. Baseball legend Hank Aaron. Iconic comedian Jackie Mason. Hollywood director Richard Donner. Actress, model, and Bond girl Tanya Roberts. Legendary New York rapper Biz Markey. Conservative radio host Rush Limbaugh. Siegfried, one half of the famous magician duo. Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh. Beloved broadcaster Larry King. 80s actress and music video vixen Tawny Katane. Legendary music producer Phil Spector. Hustler, founder, and porn peddler Larry Flint. Earl Simmons, better known as the rapper DMX. Famous fathers-slash-actors Ernie Lively and Robert Downey Sr. Musicians Johnny Solinger, former singer for Skid Row, and ZZ Top's Dusty Hill. Film stars Charles Grodin, Norman Lloyd, Olympia Dukakis, Barbara Shelley, and the legendary Christopher Plummer. Familiar TV actors Arrested Development's Jessica Walter, Night Court's Charlie Robinson, Saved by the Bell's Dustin Diamond, even The Love Boat's beloved Captain Steubing, actor Gavin McLeod, and soap opera stars Stuart Damon, General Hospital's Dr. Alan Quartermain, and Ray McDonald, All My Children's Dr. Joe Martin. These are just some of the names on a long list of quote-unquote famous people who we have lost thus far in 2021. May they rest in peace. Obviously, we have lost way more people than just those who are considered quote-unquote famous. May they all rest in peace. Yep, the Grim Reaper has certainly been busy lately. So much so that it's not just people anymore staring down the blade of the Reaper's skies. Stay tuned to hear all about it. You're listening to Alternate Current Radio. I'm Adam Clark, and this is The Daily Ruckus. Howdy, folks. Boy, time sure is fleeting, isn't it? And not just for us mere mortals. TechCrunch reports, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. After a fittingly fleeting time in the wild, Twitter is banishing its ephemeral stories feature known as Fleets, which debuted in November 2020. Twitter began testing Fleets back in March of last year. The company thought that it might be able to lure people who were hesitant about collecting their strafe thoughts into the platform's semi-permanent format with a quote-unquote lower pressure kind of a tweet. Many major social platforms have some form of disappearing content, so it made sense that Twitter would give things a try too. But after eight months live, 
Twitter is killing the feature. Like Instagram stories, fleets lived on top of the timeline, highlighted in their own dedicated space. As fleets phase out, spaces, Twitter's clubhouse-like audio rooms, will occupy the same slot in the app. The company hoped that Fleets would bring new users under its wing, but the only people who really adopted the new feature were apparently already Twitter diehards. Twitter said it would go back to the drawing board to figure out how to get more people participating on Twitter, and Fleets were an unfortunate casualty of that realization. Some members of the product team that built Fleets shared their thoughts on Twitter in the feature's waning hours. Paul Stamatu at Stammy tweeted, Quote, it's easy to think Fleets was just a stories clone. We never aimed to compete on the best creation tools, filters, etc. We wanted to be raw and authentic, non-performative, feel lighter than tweeting, with the unique Twitter network as a differentiator. End quote. Twitter consumer product VP Ilya Brown said in a blog post, quote, If we're not evolving our approach and winding down features every once in a while, we're not taking big enough chances. End quote. To the company's chagrin, the feature's swift demise apparently inspired more enthusiasm for the product than Fleets had enjoyed previously. Twitter's tweet announcing the death of Fleets also somehow turned into an iconic enough moment that the company made it into a collectible hoodie that reads, quote, we're sorry, or you're welcome, end quote, ensuring that fleets will live on in our hearts until we inevitably forget they ever existed. Perhaps the most fitting tribute of all. TechCrunch.com. Well, gee, that's sad. Farewell, fleets. We barely knew thee. Let us take a moment of silence in remembrance. Wait, what were we talking about again? Oh yeah, that's right. Twitter pulled the plug on one of their features. Meanwhile, in other news, YouTube pulled the plug on yet another channel. And this wasn't just some rinky-dink, one-man operation type channel either. This is one of the big boys. Specifically, it was a Rupert Murdoch-owned cable TV channel in Australia. According to NWO report, ACMA, the Australian Communications Media Authority, has been sidelined by the US social media giant YouTube. ACMA, which has the responsibility of regulating Australian broadcasting, television and radio stations, has taken no action against the Rupert Murdoch-owned Sky News Channel, which, like its U.S. counterpart, Fox News, has been spewing out disinformation on the COVID-19 pandemic. In fact, on Sunday, Sky News began being rolled out to the Southern Cross Austereo and WIN regional television networks, which means Australians in the bush will now be subject to the same coverage as those of their city counterparts. The channel is already the leading news channel on Foxtel and the highest reaching Australian news brand on social media. Both the US and Australian broadcasters have been debunking and ridiculing the wearing of masks, the value of lockdowns, and the importance of vaccination. Now YouTube has banned Sky News Australia and removed numerous videos of 
televised broadcasts the channel has posted in relation to its COVID-19 coverage. They will be unable to upload any new broadcasts and will not be able to edit any remaining videos for a week. If in the next 90 days it breaches YouTube's guidelines another two times, it will be permanently banned. Primetime Sky News host Alan Jones earlier in the week had his weekly column in Australia's biggest selling newspaper, The Daily Telegraph, polled by editor Ben English. News Corp, however, later in the week pointed out the decision was English's and in no way meant Sky News was not standing behind Jones. Sky News commentators supported those who took part in the protests against the Sydney lockdown last Saturday, while most in the community were appalled at the protesters' actions. Both Sky News and Fox News have railed against their respective governments for the handling of the pandemic. The New South Wales premier Gladys Berejiklian has been called quote-unquote a fool, a village idiot, out of touch, incompetent, and unfit to govern due to her actions. Fox News has churned on President Joe Biden, top White House scientist Anthony Fauci, and other government health experts in the same way. Sky News commentators have consistently bagged premiers from every state and every chief medical officer. Every time they speak, they diffuse the message governments are trying to put out to combat the pandemic. They quote so-called experts of their own, and use fringe politicians such as Senator Ted Cruz and Lindsey Graham in the U.S. and Craig Kelly in Australia to support their stance. Jones uses as his expert ridiculing the wearing of masks, Dr. Colin Axon, who is a senior lecturer in mechanical and aerospace engineering at the University of Brunei in London, who he describes as an advisor to the UK government. However, Dr. Axon, whilst he was an advisor to a government agency on ventilation in the past, is not currently an advisor. Jones' counterpart at Fox News, Sean Hannity, on Wednesday slammed the Biden administration's quote-unquote confusing and ever-evolving messaging surrounding COVID-19 mandates. Quote, over the past six months, the CDC and the NIH have given conflicting and contradictory messages on vaccines, travel, COVID variants, the origins of COVID-19, herd immunity, outdoor transmissibility, indoor transmissibility, asymptomatic spread, etc., he told his viewers. Hannity joked that, quote, if you stuck your finger in the wind, took a wild guess on COVID-related matters. You'd probably be more consistent than Fauci, Walensky, and the other so-called health experts in our federal government, end quote. Hannity continued by showing a montage of Dr. Fauci contradicting his own guidance over the past year and wondered, quote, if the administration and health experts were just reacting to liberal media outlets. Hannity asserted, quote, either way, the Biden administration is sick and tired of we, the American people, not listening to the sage advice coming from their experts, and they know just who to blame. When all else fails, blame Donald Trump and his supporters, end quote. Both channels supported former U.S. President Donald Trump 
who consistently played down the virus, often referring to it as being comparable with the flu. Sky News host Alan Jones has applauded the U.S. state of Florida for preventing counties across the state from mandating masks and implementing lockdowns. On Saturday, Florida recorded its highest ever one-day number of cases at 21,683, 50% more than the whole of last week. Florida now accounts for 20% of all cases in the U.S. This, despite the fact that 60% of people in Florida aged over 12 are vaccinated. On Friday, Florida's Republican governor, Ron DeSantis, barred school districts from requiring students to wear masks when classes resume next month. Despite the antics of Sky News in Australia, the Australian regulator has not even issued a caution over the apparent disinformation, which has been described by others in Australian media, such as 2GB host Ray Hadley and the Sydney Morning Herald columnist Peter Fitzsimmons as quote-unquote dangerous, nor has it taken any action against the vitriol and abuse of the channel's commentators towards elected and unelected government officials. NWOReport.me you know, I'm sorry folks, I gotta say, I'm a little bit more than surprised at an article like that, with that particular tone and stance on certain things like the pandemic and politics, coming from a website that claims to have one purpose, quote, to prove with undeniable proof that there is a group of extremely rich power mongers who want to rule the world in a slave state that makes the most extreme horror movie seem pale by comparison. They call their plan the New World Order. We want to wake up as many good people as possible to try to put an end to this insanity. End quote. Um, right. Like I said, it's kind of interesting that article came from a place like this. And not from your standard run-of-the-mill mainstream liberal propaganda outlet. Unless that's just what this is in disguise. I don't know. I took a peek around the website, and for the most part, it seemed much more in tune with its self-proclaimed mission there, as opposed to the article I just shared with you. But regardless, pertaining said article, granted, YouTube didn't technically kill Sky News Australia's channel. I guess you could say, for at least the next week, it's in a bit of a coma. Two more strikes, and it's out for good. Finito, no mas, kicked the bucket. And at that point, I suppose we will worry about the funeral. In the meantime, let us contemplate upon another potential future death. One which may be coming quicker than we think. And this future death is not of a person, nor of a thing, but of a way of life technically. And whether or not it's passing is a good thing or a bad thing is yet to be determined. Brett McKay, writing for The Art of Manliness, says, The other day, I found myself walking around a large grocery store after a several-month hiatus from stepping foot inside one. I hadn't avoided shopping out of a fear of COVID-19. Rather, our family had just gotten into the habit of having our groceries delivered because it's so so dang convenient. After being away from in-store shopping for a while, I felt like I saw the store with fresh eyes. And what I was so strongly struck by was just how full it was of absolute, and pardon my French, but this is really the most apt word here, bullshit food. Flamin' hot funyuns, 
3D Doritos, Twix topped yogurt, Little Debbie oatmeal cream pies cereal, which admittedly does sound really good, a dozen different kinds of Oreos, endless varieties of soda and frozen dinners, aisle after aisle of unnecessary, unhealthy, laboratory-created, market-tested, packaged products that could only be called food in the most generous sense. This isn't the observation of a health food crank, a rigid purist. My diet is relatively healthy, but also often includes a daily pack of Pop-Tarts. I'm not opposed to eating a smattering of processed foods. It also isn't at all an original observation. Health experts have for years described grocery stores as being nutritional wastelands and advised the public to only shop the perimeter of the store, the areas where the fresh, whole foods fruits, vegetables, meat, dairy, are generally positioned. It's simply that after having a little sojourn away from the store, becoming a little less acclimated to what, for all the prior decades of my life, was the taken-for-granted backdrop of my grocery shopping experience, I could finally see for the first time what these folks had been talking about. The experience made me want to hastily vacate the premises and return to shopping online. It also got me thinking not just about the future of the grocery business, but about the future of consumerism in general. Along with the rise of mass production at the turn of the 20th century came the specter of overproduction. The amount of goods companies could produce exceeded consumers' demand for them. To resolve this issue, corporations worked throughout the ensuing decades to increase this demand. This they did through advertising, through branding, and crucially through novelty, constantly coming out with new models and updating existing products with new flavors, features, colors. Novelty triggers dopamine in the brain, and dopamine triggers excitement and desire, and desire leads to impulse buying. Whereas a company might have once produced one variety of hand soap or shampoo, now they made six. Whereas they might have manufactured a couple styles of jeans, now they made a dozen. And whereas consumers would once buy the limited number of products available in the marketplace at a one-stop shop, the local general store, in order to make room to display the ever-increasing number of goods available, new stores had to be created, dedicated to particular categories, a store just for groceries, a store just for pharmaceutical and hygiene products, a store just for clothes, a store just for home improvement supplies, etc. Rather than shopping being a straightforward functional chore, walk up to the counter of the general store, ask for an item which was shelved behind the counter in a utilitarian way and buy it, it became an experience. Music was piped into the background. Aisles were designed with evocative displays. Even if a consumer went to a store or mall with a list of certain items to buy, they invariably walked out with things that weren't originally on it, having discovered products they hadn't planned on buying, but which had grabbed their attention as they browsed. This kind of shopping experience was well in place 
place by the mid-20th century and became enormously successful in expanding the public's desire for goods. At the start of the 1900s, an average American still spent nearly 90% of their income on food and other necessities. By 1960, as Vance Packard reported in The Wastemakers, that picture had dramatically changed. Quote, Today, the average citizen of the United States is consuming twice as much in the way of goods as the average citizen consumed in the years just before World War II. Nearly two-fifths of the things he owns are things that are not essential to his physical well-being. They are optional or luxury items, and there are signs that physical possessions are becoming too plentiful to accommodate comfortably. Visiting foreigners comment that the abundance of America seems to spill over into the aisles of stores, spread along the highways, and bulge out the doors, windows, and attics of houses." End quote. This picture, painted 60 years ago, remained largely the same up until the 21st century, up until the advent of online shopping began to weaken consumerism's hold. When you shop online, you're more likely to only buy things you really need. When you shop in a store, you're more likely to pick up extra stuff. Statistically, and specifically speaking, consumers spend an average of $50 more when they shop in a store versus online, while retail websites also try to lure you into adding things to your cart by showing you related products and whatnot. In the absence of the 3D multi-sensory in-person shopping experience, the sights, sounds, and smells corporations have carefully coordinated to entice you to open your wallet. It's far easier to stick with purchasing only the things you originally intended to. You've used an item before, you know you like it, you just keep on replacing it. I know when our family orders groceries online, we end up getting less stuff than when we go to the brick and mortar store. It cuts out impulse buys almost entirely. Society's shift towards online shopping, which began more than a decade ago, has exponentially accelerated during the pandemic, while prior to the coming of COVID, people had already converted to buying things like clothes online. Many still held out on shopping for things like groceries at physical stores. Over the last year and a half, however, more and more folks have started doing almost all their shopping digitally. Online grocery sales increased by more than 50% last year, while only 6.6% of major retailers offered the option of curbside pickup in early 2020. Now more than half do, and 64% of respondents to a recent survey said they planned to order more online in the future. For those who feel that our previous century of rampant consumerism, heedless materialism, and pointless stuff accumulation has carried significant downsides for our mental, physical, spiritual, and financial health, this is hearteningly good news. There's been plenty of talk over the last year and a half about how the pandemic may permanently change our individual habits and collective culture for the better. A lot of this talk is more flattering than realistic. While we like to believe in our capacity for turning over a new leaf, as things revert to how they used to be, most of our habits will too. But a change in our consumption patterns may, happily, be one shift that proves both positive and enduring. It's not as if corporations don't have other ways, outside the in-person shopping experience to entice us to buy their wares, but in a time where people discard the catalogs they receive in the mail without looking at them.
Instagram, block ads on websites, and watch television shows on ad-free streaming services, in-person shopping was one of the last fronts companies had, as Packard put it, to get people to buy things they don't need and didn't know they wanted. Thus, its decline may very well represent the death knell for the West's entrenchment in excess consumerism, as visits to stores and malls become more and more rare when people do set foot in them. Maybe more and more will get the feeling I had the other day while shopping for groceries, that, you know, this is all pretty weird and kind of gross. Maybe one day the idea that people considered shopping to be a leisure activity, that they would stroll around buildings for the express purpose of inflaming their material desires, that they would spend their money on that kind of quote-unquote experience instead of putting it towards real participatory experiences out in the world, will seem sort of dystopian. In a lot of films set in the future, people live in minimalist, streamlined homes and wear utilitarian jumpsuits, and I've always kind of wondered why that was. What was it about the future that made people stop caring so much about fashion, about stuff? Well, maybe it all began with curbside pickup. Artofmanliness.com And with that one, folks, I think I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up here. The day is getting long, time is short, I'm not getting any younger, yada yada yada. But in all seriousness, folks, time truly is fleeting, and for some unknown reason, each one of us are given a different amount of it to work with. So please remember to make the most of yours while you still can, because you never know exactly when your life, just like Twitter's fleets and Sky News Australia's YouTube channel, as well as my show, will come to its abrupt end. For the ACR, I'm Adam Clark, and this has been The Daily Ruckus for Tuesday, August 3rd, 2021. For more information, please visit alternatecurrentradio.com.